This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Most jobs lack a compelling purpose. Research finds that this workplace deficiency makes people sluggish, disengaged, careless, disloyal, unhappy, and unhealthy. Fortunately, there is a way to be free from the modern trap of meaningless labor without switching careers or quitting jobs. The scientifically validated practice of job purposing, which consists of surprisingly modest acts that anybody can do, elevates ordinary work to a fulfilling venture. B. Bocalandro's work is a delightful do-it-yourself guide to igniting meaning in any job and consequently becoming more successful, fulfilled, and happy. She equips the individual worker to do work that matters regardless of their position. Valeria Tellez interviews B. Bocalandro, the author of Do Good at Work, How Simple Acts of Social Purpose Drive Success and Well-Being. B. is founder and president of VeraWorks, a global consulting firm specializing in workplace purpose. She's helped dozens of large and small businesses, including Caesars Entertainment, Disney, FedEx, IBM, HP, Levi's, PwC, Tom's Shoes, Toyota, and QVC ignite purpose in the workplace. Her presentations across over 100 countries and teaching at Georgetown University and the University of Nevada, Las Vegas have inspired tens of thousands of people to make their work more meaningful. She splits her time between San Clemente, California and Park City, Utah. Meet B at bbocalandro.com. Here is the interview with B Bocalandro. In your own words, who is B Bocalandro? B Bocalandro is the child of a workaholic and that would be my father, and a mother who is a wonderfully principled person. And I am now a champion for helping anybody find dignity and meaning in whatever work they have. So before we talk about some of the topics in your book, Do Good at Work, How Simple Acts of Social Purpose drive success and well-being. I have these warm-up questions, as I mentioned, off record. The first one for you had to be this one. How do you define success these days? What is to be successful? You know, the ultimate success, right, is you're on your deathbed and you look back and you go, that was a well-lived life. 
I think the only way to get there is contribution. And so I would define success as that sense of having lived well, feeling the fulfillment of having contributed to others or to a societal cause. What do you think is the purpose of the human experience? So your warm-up questions are (laughs) not light at all. I love it. I'm still working on that, frankly. I love how you use the word quest in your work, and I am very much about the probably never-ending quest. What I do feel is a component of the human experience, and this is so unpopular right now, but I think it's work. I think that work is the way that we shape what's around us. We turn mud into huts, and we turn a vacant area in the middle of our tribe into a bonfire where we can sit around and tell stories. And we've lost that relationship with work where it is a positive, you know, even healing contribution to the human experience. So I do think that work has a lot more to do with the human experience than most of us traveling around the planet these days give it credit for. So there's a lot of um, negative ideas and concepts about work. But then when you think this way, that work can become a meaningful experience, then everything changes. And what's, I mean, that dichotomy that you just pointed out, it's a modern fabrication because prehistorically we humans didn't have a word for work because work was life. You woke up in the morning and you might join the hunting party or gathering party for roots out there. And that was in the same category of experience as playing with the next door toddler, you know, throwing rocks and sticks around. It There was no distinction between and the activity that ends up giving us food and shelter, which I think is how we see work and luxury and allows us to, you know, have monetary things so that then we can afford other things. Isolation of the work activities did not exist. It was all life. And in fact, they're discovering that it didn't seem that compulsory <laughs> to go hunt because we were all drawn to it anyway. And there were enough people every day that were drawn to it to go do it that if you were like, I'm kind of bored with, uh, you know, chasing down that woolly mammoth and, you know, we've been at it for three days. I I think I'll stay home. It was like all the power to you. You can stay home. That's completely fine. And so I, I love that distinction you made around work because it is arbitrary. It's not innate to the human experience. And I think it's something that we can do something about now. So that makes me wonder, what went wrong? Why do most of us think that work, it's not a good thing (laughs) in general? Yeah, that answer, I think, is quite complex. But I do think that it seems like things started going wrong 
when uh, we started doing agriculture, which is such a wonderful element of progress. Uh, you know, I love bread. So before agriculture, there's <laughs> no bread. I don't right. want to give my bread away. Uh, uh, right. uh, so I'm not, I'm not saying we got to go back to pre-agriculture. But one of the things that happened when we started with agriculture, which was about 10,000 years ago, was that we could store things. And once you can store, like, because now we're not having to carry everything that we that we gather or we hunt or even that we grow because we've been there for three, three months or something. And so we start, we start storing grains and we start owning animals and this creates wealth. And once we have wealth, essentially we start getting distracted by it instead of living our true lives and because it it does seem like a great thing to have a lot of money in the bank or to have a, a refrigerator full of, you know, delicious food. And so that is one of the things that has gone wrong. And so then we started working not because of contribution, not because we were like, I'm going to get this woolly mammoth because I'm looking forward to that feast for everyone, you know, this is not that I'm going to grab that little piece of woolly mammoth that belongs to me and my spouse and my kids and put it in my icebox. It was, I have this vision of how much fun this feast is going to be tonight with all 80 or 150 of the tribe members enjoying this roasted meat, right? <laughs> and so we gave up that vision for... I'm going to do my little part of work. I'm going to finish this project to get my bonus so that I can buy myself or my spouse uh, the that next car. And now we're we're doing it for the material gain. And so that is I think that's one thing that has gone wrong. There are many others. Some people blame specialization on this as well. So uh, I'm not not saying that that's a complete answer, but I think that that is one of the factors driving why work is so diminished in modern times compared to really what it represents in the in the totality of the of the human experience. The idea that work can become something that can bring all of us together is just wonderful. So I can imagine, which I'm living this now in a way, it's just so wonderful to work with other people and see them growing because of what are you doing. But it's not that you're working just for that and waiting for that gratification, but it's just that the journey in itself, the work in itself, having this weight, having this meaning, that's really what it is. It's meaning. Right. I mean, that that's why you showed up to the podcast today, right? Like Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So you're you're in touch with that <laughs> and you know that makes you not only does that make you better at what you do, like you like literally there are scientific studies out there showing that the quality of your work is is higher and you you produce 24% more according to one one study than you would if you just showed up to do this podcast, you know, for some 
extrinsic gain, you know, monetary or fame or something like that. But you're you're happier and you're healthier. I read in your book that caught my attention. You say, I am convinced that the quest to uncover one's life purpose or any singular way to contribute to the world is unnatural and unhelpful. Yeah, so um, I've already (laughs) introduced our prehistoric ancestors. So I'm going to go back to them. So imagine it's uh, 20,000 years ago and there's this this hunting expedition and someone in the hunting expedition, you know, is trying to cross a river, but they're having a hard time and they're struggling and they're in danger of drowning. Another person, the rest of the hunting expedition looks back at him and goes, ah, you know, uh, one of them says, you know, I'm sorry, whatever their name is, Um, you know, brute, you know, I'm sorry, brute. I can't help you because my life purpose is not water safety. It's, you know, making sure that our, all our children know how to do, learn paint drawings. Right. And then another person in the expedition says, I would help you too, but my life purpose is not water safety either. My life purpose is, you know, making sure that all parents have what they need to bring up their, their children well. And basically, if that's the way we thought, uh, if that's the way we were, uh, evolution made us, we would have gone extinct because brute would have drowned and this would happen over and over and over again. So those those guys and gals that didn't help brute because it wasn't their life purpose, if they existed, they went extinct. They are not our ancestors. Our ancestors, we know, are like, oh my God, I can barely swim myself, but... Um, uh, and I'm not really quite sure what to do, but by God, I'm going to do something. Oh, here's a branch and respond to the need in front of them. And we are all hardwired in that manner. We're not hardwired to only help with certain societal causes. And one way we know this, all of us know this, is that almost always when we find someone that is like, I am about uh, you know, uh, automotive safety, about reducing traffic accidents. We find out that they they ended up there because they had that affect their own lives. So that means that at that point, they were open to a new purpose. So even if they appear to have a single purpose, uh, it's because they were open to other other purposes. And so I know that it's very... <laughs> It's it's very popular right now to say, you know, find your life purpose. And it is a singular. And most of us have life purpose like that are like multi-pronged. Like our, our natural is like, even if we were to someone ask, like, what are you up to in life? What do you want to accomplish? It would be a list of things. It's like, well, I want to make sure my kids are healthy. I want to make sure my spouse is happy. I want to make sure that my community, uh, you know, doesn't have a toll road going through the middle of it. You know, we have many, many ways that we want to contribute. And I think that we should just let ourselves off the hook for this single, simple, overarching purpose that weaves through all our lives. If if we feel we have one, 
fantastic. Um, and by the way, allow it to evolve too. Mm-hmm. If if uh, if you start if it starts feeling dull, then you're wired that way as well. And so it's okay to have it evolve. If so, if you feel you have one and that is driving you, there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm, I want to speak to those who don't feel like they have a life purpose and they're like, but I don't, I can't find my life purpose. And it's like, you're normal. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's fantastic. You have many life purposes. Mm-hmm. You, you, you in some mm-hmm. regards are more open. So mm-hmm. when you have a neighbor who isn't able to go shopping because of the uh, global pandemic we're in, you can help with that. You know, that is your brute who is in danger of drowning and you can respond to that. But you can also respond to a friend who's doing, you know, a virtual bike ride to raise money for cancer. I mean, you and all these purposes with the small P, they are just as powerful as having a singular one. So you, you're not losing out on anything by basically contributing to many purposes. What do you think freedom is? What is to be free? I know it's not what many of us right now in the United States are claiming it is. So we are social beings. Uh, it's virtually impossible for us to, to feel joy, to be happy, uh, even to be healthy without those of us around us also being so. And freedom has been misinterpreted, I think, by many Americans. And I'm guilty of this at times, too. It's like, I have the right to park here, you know, whatever, <laughs> as well. But I think I, I, I think that we think that freedom means we can do whatever we want regardless of the consequences. And somehow we have earned this, which is kind of an interesting concept uh, or, or, or it's a given right. And I think freedom should always be, be looked at in the collective context. So as soon as you're saying, I have the right to do this regardless of the danger it puts others in, or regardless of you know, how belittling it is to my neighbors, that's not a value. (laughs) I mean, that and freedom is, 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 is a value. It's a positive thing. So you have left, you have left the, that value of freedom and gone to something else like a a self-centeredness maybe. So I think that freedom is defined and also constrained to be fair by the collective. And having said that, it is the ability to be ourselves. The good news is if we're truly ourselves, like if we are truly ourselves, we would never believe in that version of freedom that is willing to undermine others for it. Because we are hardwired to feel empathy to the point that we have cells in our bodies that feel for other people. So if we are truly ourselves, we would not be willing to do something that undermines others, that belittles others, that puts others in danger for the sake of my freedom. 
Um, there's one exception, I, I should say, between uh, you know one in three percent of the world's population is sociopathic, and if if you're an extreme sociopath, then maybe you can be your true self and believe in that definition of freedom. But if you're not an extreme sociopath, then by the definition of freedom to be your true self, it can never really be at the cost of others because otherwise you're not being your true self. That makes me reflect and wonder how can we change that? How do we become more aware and more willing to show our true selves? It seems like it takes uh, courage too, right, Dee? To be ourselves. It takes courage. I think there's a lot of luck involved. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> mm-hmm. like who your parents were. Mm, right, so right. I, I do, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I, I say all of this about people who are misinformed on what freedom is. I mean, w- you know, kind of with a broken heart because it's frankly worse for them than for anybody else. So to, you know, to walk around in life and to think that that's the way it is, you know, that what we're meant to do and what is best for us is do things that diminish the well-being of others and that that's, that's the natural state. I mean, that, that's a really hard place to be in. I mean, to wake up in the morning and to think that that's the way the world is, that's a tough place to be. So I, I, you know, I think all of us have a, and, you know, some of our parents taught us that and others had parents that kind of started us further along the journey of, of really discovering what freedom is. One more question for you, the warm up question. What is love to you, B? <laughs> I love that you call them warm up questions. Like, I can't <laughs> wait for the real question. <laughs> They're so simple. You know, I I focus on helping people make small steps towards contribution through their work because I I think it's almost impossible to have a joyful life if you don't do that. And uh, there's, you know, there's a study out there that if you, you know, if you don't find your work satisfying and fulfilling, uh, it's almost impossible that you find your life to be so. This is for full-time workers. So the chances are 1%. <laughs> so it's a 99% chance that you're like, it spills over into your life. That's how important our work is. And so I help with the 101 of make do small things that can um, bring you fulfillment and joy and pride at the end of your work week. You asked about love, and I think love is the ultimate destination. I mean, one reason I help people make a small, take that that small step is because it's not like people are just walking in one direction and I'm, I'm helping them with the next step. It's that they're walking in one direction and I'm helping them take a step in a different direction. So it's literally a pivot towards a new direction. And I guess what I'd say is that at that pivot and then continuing on that journey where you find small ways to contribute during your week, work week, and then you realize, oh, my God, I love this. And then you find bigger ways and then you go, wow, I'm actually turning into a different person here 
And you're kind of rightfully prouder of yourself because of who you are becoming. So that journey goes to love. Like the ultimate home of that journey is love. But I haven't gotten there. (laughs) So, (laughs) So I don't know that I can describe it, but I do think that that is the final destination. Mm -hmm. There's nothing bigger than that. Stay with the love topic that I often ask the question, and I think it's related in a way because you talk about feeling proud of ourselves and good about ourselves. Do you believe in unconditional self-love? Unconditional self-love. You know, when I was about six years old, my father... Uh, we were just driving around doing errands in his pickup truck. And, you know, I was in the passenger seat, probably like pressing buttons and stuff. Mm -hmm. And he just like out of the blue, he just said, do you realize that I love you even when I'm angry at you? And I think I remember thinking, what do you mean? Or no. (laughs) And he explained, he said, I can be really angry at you. I can... Uh, you you did something wrong and I'm afraid that something's going to happen to you or to your mom. And I can, I, I can be really angry for what you did. But even then, I love you with all my heart. And I guess I see unconditional love the same way. If the definition is no matter how badly we've messed up, we look inside ourselves and go, there's a part of us, there's a part of me that is that is inherently and infinitely lovable. And maybe that wasn't that wasn't the part of me that did this stupid thing, but that is lovable. Then absolutely I believe in it. If the definition of <laughs> unconditional love is uh okay, you know, you did something that really hurt people in the workplace or, you know, you did something that was really greedy and, or I mean, I should say I did something that's really greedy or I did something that is really hurtful to people in the workplace. But I, you know, I got to love it all because that's who I am and no one tried to change me. So I don't think we should love everything we do, but I do think that we should try to love our essence or our deepest self, which I believe is a positive thing. Yeah. Yes. Like our deepest self is actually a positive being. I guess we all try to get there in our own ways. So how did you become a writer, B? I've always loved language. I read a ton. So it didn't, it seemed like I would write at some point. It just took me a while to feel like I had something that was worth writing about. (laughs) (laughs) So, and, you know, having said that, I became an author. Uh, I just actually got the, 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 the boxes with the paperback books today. Uh, So uh, I guess that makes it official. And I have to say, as much as I love reading and the, written language and it it was tough it was a tough journey but i actually loved it as well i think i became a writer because i realized that my work which is helping companies do good in the world 
could only go so far and really only executives can hire me. And this left out most people who work and would like to use work as a platform for doing good. And so I thought, well, I have to, I, I have to get this message out there to people who could really use it and equip them on how to do this, do good at work stuff. Uh, so I did it kind of out of, you know, a vision for what was possible for the world. But, but I'm also kind of passionate about writing. So it, mm-hmm. it was both like a, a pull for the purpose and <laughs> kind of a passion for like, this will be a fun project. I get yeah. to write, you know, every weekend. In the way they walk together, this idea of doing good and having passion and enjoying whatever we are doing. I love this idea of living this way. So you say, I think any worker in any job could go home secure that their day of labor mattered, that they matter. So I guess this is the moment to talk about your father. Talk to me about the inspiration, how he inspired you to do the work you do. Yeah, my workaholic father. <laughs> so, you know, which again, it served him well, you know. Um, I, I I, think if you're doing meaningful work and you do, like, you oversize the amount of work you do in life, you know, there are worse things to do in life than That's that. That's so true. <laughs> yeah. My father was, he was such a champion for anybody who was underprivileged in, in the workplace, everywhere really, but uh, as I argue in my book, the workplace is really the best platform we have to do good. Even just looking at the sheer amount of time we spend there, why not use that to do good? You know, the, the logical question for someone who hears you describe the book the way I, you know, you just did uh, is how? How in the world <laughs> can I right. take my, you know, middle manager job and end the work week feeling proud that my work mattered, right? Like how? And the whole book answers the how. But it, we can become the type of beings that see opportunities everywhere, like my father did. So he did everything from there was uh, one time when the handyman, uh, well, he was a janitor, among other things, spilled a pail of water, uh, dirty water, uh, in the office at the end of the day because his back was cramping, of all things. Sort of the, the, the director of that office came out and yelled at him and said, this is in Caracas, Venezuela, and said, you know, you're basically good for nothing. Go back to your shanty town." And my, my father, who was a middle manager, came out. I, I heard the story from the, the janitor, uh, came out and stood in the puddle with the janitor, faced the big boss and put his like stop, you know, stop gesture up and said, it's OK. It's OK. Everybody makes mistakes. I'll make sure it's cleaned up. The boss, you know, pivoted and went into his office and slammed the door. And then my father, you know, there were all these onlookers at this point because there was all this yelling and shouting and, and everything going on. And all, there were all these onlookers and my father asked one of them, hey, could, can you uh, go get like another mop and another pail? And my father started cleaning up with this 
uh, janitor and the, the janitor who's a, again the one who told the story to me said that you know he tried to stop him because it's like no you're you're like a big manager you're like a MIT trained engineer you know you shouldn't be wringing dirty water from your hands and you know my my father actually he turned it into a joke he's like I know, I know I'm probably not very good at this, but <laughs> if you teach me, you know, and, and he, uh, you know, so he, yeah. he, he just, he wouldn't, he, he declined, you know, the invitation to just leave it alone and let other people, uh, clean it up. And what's, what's amazing about this story is also, and this part is not in the book because I, I wanted to keep the book short so that someone could go home on a Friday and go like, oh. I need work that has some sense of meaning and pick up the book and finish it before they went back on Monday. So this <laughs> right. part came out, this part came out, but what's amazing, one of the amazing things about that story is that it turns out when I asked my father about it, he's like, Oh, I, I barely got my hands wet because pretty much every onlooker started helping and this is something, and so that was, you know, that spill was cleaned up in like 42 seconds flat. You know, that's what my, my dad said. And I think that to me, that reaction from all those onlookers, like that is, that is kind of all of us when we, when we start working in the morning is that we're almost like waiting for the permission to be more human at work. And when someone gives it to us and we know what we can do, we know how to, how to act on it, we jump on it because again, we're not sociopaths or most of us are not. And so this is an, an, an innate response and it's, it's what takes us to being at our best. And that brings me to that question, the big one. How do you teach companies to do that, to be open to this idea and let their employees to be more human? Well, the good news is that things start going well so quickly that typically if I can, if I can convince a executive or a middle manager to do the pilot test, so we're going to do this just for eight weeks and you know, we start with something small. So for example, with one team, every staff meeting, someone was recognized for what they did the prior, uh, the prior, uh, you know, the period of time between the staff meetings, I think it was every two weeks. And then the way they were recognized was they would get, you know, like a gift card to a fast food restaurant. And I said, this is all I could convince this manager to do. I said, why don't we just try? Let's just try to, instead of the reward being a gift card, why don't we have it be a charitable giving card? They can give $50 to the charity of their choice. And when they come back the next staff meeting, we invite them to share which charity they gave it to and why. This changed the whole team because all of the sudden people were, and this manager cries at staff meetings now <laughs> often, and he's proud of it now because he, he wouldn't have thought that was appropriate before trying this pilot. But when he realized, when someone comes up and says, I gave this gift card and I 
to hospice because when my mother was dying, it's like they were there. And I know that her last week she was taken care of, she was comfortable, and I could focus on just spending time with her. And, and you know, when they tell that story, it changes the whole culture of that team into like, we're not just these production units that, you know, walk into the door and do item one, item two, item three, item four, and go home. We're actually these warm, fuzzy, (laughs) messy human beings and that care about things. So Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, this manager will never go back to giving Mm -hmm. the fast food gift cards because, and, and from there, they now do many other things that are around purpose. So I guess what I say, my answer is, if I can convince the test, the pilot test, just the test run, it's usually the experiences are what sell the whole concept of doing good at work. People become almost addicted to it. For reasons that you have been talking today, it's uh, we are wired to connect and to help others, right? Yeah. And no, I think that's exactly right. And we are absolutely wired to connect. And I think contribution is a really powerful way to connect, like either contributing together or contributing to each other. In your book, you talk about the benefits. There are so many, the way it impacts uh, having social purpose, impacts our well-being. And you talk about the reduction of stress, improves mental health, physical health, reduces pain, boosts popularity. That's kind of cute, (laughs) this one. Uh, Happiness, um, expand lifespan, uh, boost career success. So true. That makes so much sense to me. I never worked in big companies, so I don't have that experience. But it's just common sense that if we feel like we are contributing to something bigger than ourselves, greater then, yeah, everything just becomes so much easier. Yeah, it's simple and it's also easier to do. Life becomes simpler and easier. That's so interesting. Yeah, and all of those things that you just listed, you know, there are academic studies showing that. And the case is so compelling that there's a cardiologist, his uh, name is Rosansky, and he... Dr. Rosansky, and and he says that the evidence is so compelling of all those things you said, like lower anxiety, lower cardiovascular disease, less chance of depression, uh, less chance of dying in any given year by more than a 20% less, more than 20% less chance of dying in any given year that, you know, Rosansky says uh, that basically social purpose or contributing to others is actually the most effective driver of well-being out there. We're almost at the end. I have a few more questions for you. But before that, would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book? Um, I I would love to read a quick passage. Yes. Okay, great. Uh, Before I start, I just have to share two terms. So I've been talking about this tendency and our innate tendency to want to contribute. And just so you know, in the book, I call this our inner giver. And then we also have a tendency to want to make 
take care of ourselves, which we need, by the way. Um, you know, if someone's coming with us with an axe, it's like we need that inner egotist, the one that says, by God, I'm not going to let you kill me. Right. <laughs> so I just needed to introduce those two terms. OK. Yeah. Yeah. When my brother Alfredo was 16, he disassembled the derelict Volkswagen Beetle with the intent of transforming it into a functioning vehicle. It didn't go as planned. After months of tools clanking, the engine roars to life. Success! Well, sort of. The car runs, but with a quirk. It has four gears in reverse and one in drive. Alfredo inverted some part in the transmission. The entire family is amused, but no one more so than the self-effacing Alfredo. With a twinkle in his eye and keys in his outstretched hand, he offers, Want to drive 50 miles per hour in reverse? I take the keys. I back out of our driveway onto the streets of Caracas and do my best. Everything is a struggle. With the steering wheel doing the opposite of what I expect, I meander side to side. Having to turn my head 180 degrees is unpleasant. The massive blind spot is frightening. I don't know how fast I managed to go because the dash is behind my head, but I doubt it's more than 15 miles per hour. After 10 minutes, my neck aches, I'm exhausted, and judging from the honks, intensely disliked. At work, most of us suffer from an inversion similar to that of Alfredo's beloved bug. Our inner, inner egotist and inner giver roles are reversed. We rely on our inner egotist to drive our careers. Yet the inner egotist is more like a reverse gear. It's designed for episodic maneuvering, mostly out of tight spots. It's not good at cruising forward and giving us that wind in our hair, joyful ride of our lives. When we succeed by the power of our inner egotist, we're doing it the hard way. Our journey is unnecessarily shaky, unpleasant, frightening, slow, and painful. Many of us believe mistakenly that this is normal and inevitable. I really thank you for doing the work you do because now uh, we are creating the space of awareness. So we can change this the way we think. So we'll change the way we live. <laughs> Word. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, B. Thank you, Valeria. It's, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for the work you do. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? I don't think so. And the reason I say that is... I'm basically asking myself that question on a weekly basis right now. And so I guess my answer is, I feel like there are probably some things that I sh that should come up, <laughs> but I'm not wise enough to, to have found them yet. My last question, what are three things about life you know for sure as of today? I know that there's a evolution in everything that I'm doing and that we are doing as humans. And so by definition, anything we think we know uh, is probably at the very least incomplete and might be wrong. Yeah, I, I think I know that we are evolving. 
I'm evolving, you know, you're evolving, uh, our listeners are evolving, the world is evolving. And so, yeah, so nothing is static. Mm-hmm. I, I, the, I think the second thing is I, I do believe that our evolution is positive. And I'm I'm a data nerd, you know, as you know, my book is 153 (laughs) footnotes. Uh, There's a a book by Steven Pinker. He's a, what is he, organizational psychologist or something, Um, but he's at Harvard. And the, the, the book is called Enlightenment Now. And what he does very much in a scientific way is look at every issue out there uh, that we have, that we struggle with as a, as a species, you know, everything from violence to uh, health, uh, environment, uh, you know, all the societal causes out there. And for every single one, he shows with the data we have uh, always going back at least hundreds of years, in some cases, thousands of years, that we're on an upward trajectory. Like there's there's just very little uh, doubt that what the human experience is right now is much more positive than it was 300 300 years ago, 400 years ago. Now, I'm not going to go into prehistory because that's kind of a different thing, but modern history is an upward trend. And I want to throw in there that this is contrary to what we believe. So 94% of Americans believe that the world is getting worse every year. And um, 90% of people around the globe believe that. I, the second thing is that I believe that we are evolving in a positive direction. And I took so long for the first two that I'll skip the third. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, I love your answer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much again, B, for this meaningful conversation, your lovely presence. I love your wisdom. And my last question, the technical one, is where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Mm-hmm. Yes. So the easiest way to learn more is to go to dogoodatwork.com. So that's dogoodatworkaltogether.com. If someone wants to join my mailing list you can unsubscribe anytime so it's not like you're committed (laughs) it's not like a marriage you're committed to me for life or anything but you can also just text do good at work all one word to 47177 and you'll get a text back and um, we'll we'll put you on the mailing list I look forward to uh, you know sharing this journey with with your listeners because what an amazing group they they have to be after <laughs> listening to even just listening to two or three of your podcasts uh, transforms us. So mm. thank you again. And uh, we'll talk soon for sure. Thank you. B. Thank you, Valerie. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about B. Bocalandro and her work, please visit bbocalandro.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. 
Thank you again for listening and bye for now.